So my guest today is Christian Munte. Christian is a professor of practical philosophy at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. Christian conducts research and expert consultation on ethics, value, and policy issues arising in the intersection of health, science, and technology, the environment, and society. He is probably best known for his work on the precautionary principle and its uses in ethical and policy debates, and this was the central topic of his 2011 book, The Price of Precaution and the Ethics of Risk, and he currently works in the ethics of antibiotic resistance and psychiatry. He engages with the public through his blog, Philosophical Comment, and on his active Twitter account. So welcome to the show, Christian. Thanks. So we're going to talk about some of the work that you've done on the precautionary principle, and in particular on how that principle applies to debates about existential risk. And I've touched upon existential risk in several previous podcasts. So this is a topic that you address in a recent paper published in 2019 called The Black Hole Challenge, Precaution, Existential Risks, and the Problem of Knowledge Gaps. And so in this paper, you highlight a major problem for people who think that we should take existential risks seriously, namely that if you do take them seriously, it's hard to know when, if ever, we should stop investing time and other resources into understanding and mitigating them. Yeah. So, I mean, the argument is a bit more subtle than that, and but it touches upon a concern that I've long had about existential risk debates, and hopefully we can explore it in more detail in the remainder of our conversation. Yep. So, I mean, let's just start with the most obvious initial question here. People are probably familiar with the idea of a precautionary principle, but could you explain what that means uh, in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so the precautionary principle itself uh, uh, comes from politics and especially international political agreements in the area, especially in the environmental policy area. So the first mentions that you find are sort of marine environmental uh, policy and most famously the Rio Declaration from the 1980s. So so it starts out as a pretty unprecise political idea, which is this uh, basic notion that just because we, we don't have really certain proof that something is dangerous, that doesn't mean that we, we cannot have good reasons to act uh, to prevent or mitigate uh, possible dangers that we see with some technology or some practice or something like that. So that's the sort of the starting point. And then you can add things which you actually find in the real declaration that also that uh, even if you can have such reasons, also such reasons have to observe uh, other kinds of requirements like cost effectiveness and sort of that you have a balancing of competing reasons and so on and so forth. So that's where it started out really. And then um, this turned into, this was interpreted by a lot of people in a very sort of, in a very simple way. You say, okay, so it means that something seems to be dangerous, we have to ban it. And sometimes you could hear formulations like this and also in political debates, for example, in the GMO debate, you often find formulations like, okay, so it could be that there is some serious uh, ecological problem due to, um, you know, uh, GMO crops or something like that, farming with GMO crops. So therefore we shouldn't use them. So if if you argue like that, it sounds like this is some kind of absolute uh, moral ban principle or something like that. And there's also an early philosophical work by a German theologian, uh, Hans Jonas, who uh, formulated what he called the principle of responsibility, but it's basically some kind of precautionary principles, which then says that if the, some activity or some technology could pose a danger to the human species, then it's we shouldn't engage in it at all so that's basically then it's out of bounds and so so that you find this formulation and this gave rise to a lot of skeptical writings uh, related to the uh, precautionary principles during the 1990s and also early 2000 uh, 2000s so and that's where i started to hear about it so you, so you so you sort of encounter all these principles and as a philosopher who was schooled in more decision theoretic the decision theory and more advanced moral philosophy, you could, of course, immediately see the problems with the principle like that. 
But then when I started to look a little bit closer uh, on what was actually in the precautionary principle, when you looked at how it was constructed then in the Rio Declaration and in regulation and so on, it's never constructed as this kind of absolute ban. So it's uh, mostly constructed as some kind of requirement for orderly, ordered introduction of new technologies and new activities in particular fields. Then, uh, and then with reference to the fact that the, in these fields it might be that the technology could pose really serious dangers to the environment or to human beings or animals and so on and so forth. And uh, famously biotechnology is one such technology, for instance, that has been sort of also regulated in some areas of the world in this way. But basically the idea is the same as we had in the 1960s with regard to pharmaceuticals, for instance, that you cannot just start using it and roll it out. You have to sort of have some kind of certification process where you check uh, up uh, what the evidence is regarding dangers and benefits and things like that. Yeah, so, I mean, the one thing that I read many years ago about the precautionary principle by a philosopher called Neil Manson, I don't know if you're familiar with his uh, yeah, yeah, paper on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I found that helpful, and it's, it stuck in my mind anyway, because he said that a precautionary principle has basically three elements to it. It has, like, a, a damage condition. You identify some possible harm associated yeah. with a technology or a policy. A knowledge condition. So you have mm-hmm. some level of belief attached to the the likelihood of that damage occurring so you could be certain or you could be think it's a mere possibility or highly probable or something like that and then you have a set of suggested remedies that could include a total ban on the technology or policy but it could include something lesser than that do you think that's yeah yeah, yes, that captures things. Then you move, uh, so that paper by Manson is, is one of several ones that after a while started to appear. I think the first first paper that I read that had a more sort of nuanced treatment of analyzing uh, precautionary principle was a paper by Per Sandin from 99. I think it's called uh, Dimensions of the Precautionary Principle, actually, where he broke it down in a very similar way to Manson. And, so, and there's several other people who sort of made similar suggestions. And what you do then is that you move from the actual principle, the way it's found in legislation or in politics, and you move to some kind of background norm. They say, okay, so here they seem to assume that it's sort of important here not to do too risky or too unproven stuff. At least when too much is at stake. Uh, this seems to be a background assumption. I think that Manson uh, manages to capture some of that. But for example, the knowledge condition, I think that Dan Steele's recent work and some of my analysis also from another angle has, has pointed to the fact that this knowledge condition of Manson seems to be two separate ideas. So one is about you know the, the risk and the likelihood that you could describe, but another one is about the quality of information underlying that description. So I think often uh, what you get is that you you have this new technology, you could always give some kind of description of the balance between possible benefits and burdens, but then what motivates policy might not be that balance, but the quality of information underlying it. So that's often the case in the pharmaceutical area. So you, first, you, you're mandated to collect a certain type and quality of evidence. Then you sort of show this to the authorities. And then you're also uh, required to demonstrate a certain balance between the positives and the negatives of, of the technology, given that evidence. And then often when you say no, to something, it could be not because of the balance, because, but because of the quality or the underlying evidence. So I think that that's the kind of epistemic precaution that Steele calls it. I think that's a very nice uh, terminology. So there's the epistemic precaution, and then there's the risk ethical part of the precaution, where the question is how to balance the risks and risks and chances, if you like, that you that you see given a certain epistemic state that you're in. I mean, can I ask a question about? Um just the relationship between the precautionary principle and what we might call generic 
cost-benefit analysis? I mean, are they radically distinct things? Is it that you approach cost-benefit analysis with a certain attitude, or what's the what's going on there? So I think the, uh, if you take the, the sort of uh, the standard model of cost-benefit analysis or risk-cost-benefit analysis, it has this assumption about uh, uh, maximizing expected utility uh, in the back. Background. So it sort of assumes a certain way of balancing the pros and the cons. Um, so that's one part where the precautionary principle need not necessarily uh, have the same view on the balancing as that you assume a risk cost benefit uh, balance. But then again, so Sven Hansson wrote a paper several years back when he pointed to the fact well, if you look at when people complain about lack of precaution of different technologies, for instance, they often seem to complain that you haven't really conformed to the standard risk and analytical assessment. Uh, so sometimes maybe calls for precaution are merely that you should conform to the standard risk analytical assessment and the sort of typical management that you go through sort of uh, a good quality, uh, go through the information, you assess the evidence, you, you calculate the risks and the possible benefits and you do the balancing properly. So often we start doing things without doing that. And sometimes they complain with that. So it could be, so I, I mean, it depends. So my, uh, one thing I do in the book is that I present this idea that you could have, you know, this as a, more of a sliding scale of degrees of precaution. Uh, so you could say that, well, okay, so doing a traditional risk-cost-benefit analysis style assessment, that's still more precautionary than just, you know, acting on a hunch, uh, as we often do, uh, or acting as is often done in a lot of uh, consumer product areas. You just start marketing something, and there's never been any kind of checkup of how it works or anything, unless it contains some part that is already required to do that. So, so I think that that's the relationship. Another thing that also infected the, the debate for a long time was that this assumption that the precautionary principle had to be this sort of simplistic ban um, led people to believe that you couldn't, you couldn't have a precautionary principle satisfy sort of very basic conditions of rational decision-making that you find in the traditional uh, risk analytical model. For instance, that you take into account the opportunity cost of whatever decision you make. That is, that you take into account, for instance, that your whatever you do, if, if you abstain from some activity, I, of course, also abstain from the chance of the benefits that that activity might have given me and so on. So that kind of thing. And there was a lot of criticism uh, around in sort of the first decade of the 2000s here. Um, we heard that sort of arguments being repeated. But I think that Per Sandin's article and then Manson's and several other people uh, and also my own analysis from a more moral philosophical standpoint pointed to the fact that you don't need you can actually combine the idea of of trying to um, uh, act precautionary but also that you do it while paying attention to what you might lose by uh, acting precautionary so so it's not only so that was the problem with the Hans Jonas principle so that meant that any sort of minimal, you know, microscopic likelihood of the extinction of the human species would sort of balance out any other sort of consideration. And of course, you always have a theoretical likelihood, even, you know, just walking out your door. And I don't think he ever thought about that principle in that way. But when you come from a decision theoretical standpoint and a more sophisticated moral philosophical standpoint, you of course immediately see that problem with that kind of principle. But I, what I, I tried to do in my book was then to describe a, a normative approach that would uh, provide room for, for those good parts of the cost-benefit analytical framework, where I think that the thing that you you include all the options in your assessment and you also include for every option when you sort of evaluate it, you also include what you could lose by choosing that option rather than another one. And that's sort of within, you know, 
the orthodoxy of standard decision theoretical models than underlying risk analysis. So in that way, I think you, there was kind of an opposition in the beginning of the debate, and a lot of philosophers sort of ridiculed that and, and also criticized formulations that seem to lead in that way. But I think the idea itself um, uh, doesn't need to be in conflict with that. And I think there are some recent literature out where actually have uh, people who are experts on, on actual risk analysis that sort of incorporate precautionary ideas in the risk analytical models. So it seems to work pretty fine. And I think also Dan Steele's book illustrates illustrates this pretty, pretty nicely in his final chapter when he has a bunch of, of applications that he does for his um, his approach. And, and I also think then that this example with you know pharmaceutical licensing is an illustration of this, that we have been doing this. So, so it's nothing strange, really. The Hans Jonas idea, I think, kind of plays in a little bit with this debate about existential risk. But, I mean, to, yeah. to approach that, in your paper, The Black Hole Challenge, there are two concepts that I think are important that arise from this debate about the precautionary principle to understanding this challenge that you raise. So one of them, which we, we've touched upon both of these already, but one of them is this idea of the knowledge gap um, so we we mentioned the kind of epistemic uncertainty you might have, but maybe you could flesh yeah. out what what the knowledge gap is in this particular context. Yeah, so so, so we uh, no, the the idea of a knowledge gap it, is, it actually comes from so the term itself comes from health technology assessment literature, where they often the result of a health technology assessment usually is that they describe a knowledge gap. That is, they describe what they don't know and where in which area they lack information, where they, you could desire more information. So I think that in all real situations of important decision-making, we face various types of knowledge gap. And then it might be different sorts of knowledge gaps. So, I mean, so one knowledge gap is that you have like a bona fide ignorance that you, you certain things we, we simply don't know, and we know that we don't know it. Uh, but then I think perhaps the more common one is that even if we lack a lot, we lack evidence, we can still make some kind of estimation or educated guess. And if you're a Bayesian in decision theory, you will be very prone to start your reasoning with making such an assess estimate of some kind just to get, get things going, for instance. Uh, but then the question is, okay, so given this initial estimate, that you do, then you also know that by collecting more information, you could you could sort of improve it and make it more precise and make the evidence of it, increase the quality of the evidence and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, so, that, so that's the question. And when it came to the existential risk, because they are so, they are so far-reaching and radical, uh, um, they often uh, have us facing enormous knowledge gaps often then with also including not only uncertainty that you could make less uncertain, but also um, actual actual ignorance in, in several fields. So this question about, you know, uh, so might the introduction of artificial intelligence that's currently going on in the finance sector, might that lead to the Bostromian uh, takeover of uh, the singularity and, and the superintelligence and all that. Well, might, might not. Uh, but again, we have to, I mean, I think we have to admit that we lack most of the empirical evidence that we would need in order to do a more qualified kind of uh, projection there, although you can make guesses, of course. So then you say, okay, so given that we have this knowledge gap, you could say that, well, still, um, if that would actually be the development, that would be pretty serious. And uh, so therefore, uh, we should actually uh, make some effort to close this knowledge gap a little bit, or at least make it uh, less radical than it, than it is currently then. And I think this just because of the uh, enormity or the massiveness of the threat that could be there in the future if we walk down this path. Uh, and I think that the same layer you have when you have this sort of external existential risk where you have, you know, the meteorite that will just obliterate Earth or, or whatever. Um, and here it's 
broader the knowledge gap will be about different kinds of responses that we might think of to this threat. So the threat we cannot really control, but we can think about responses like, you know, okay, so let's migrate to another planet or let's let's bomb it with nuclear weapons for far before it reaches us and things like that. But all of these solutions will, of course, have enormous uncertainties tied to them, including the uncertainty whether or not they are really feasible at all or just, you know, childish fantasies. So... Yeah. And, and that, yeah, so, so then you get in the position of asking, okay, so, okay, so in face of this, this kind of really serious thing that might happen, shouldn't we then try at least to start to research things a little bit more so that we improve the sort of the quality of evidence that we can use for forecast and for also designing responses in, in this kind of area? Yeah, so, so that's the idea of the knowledge gap. Yeah, so I mean, as I understand it here, what's happening? Okay, if we just maybe define the concept of an existential risk, I mean, we've given two examples of the AI threat and a meteorite threat, but basically, an existential risk following Bostrom's definition is some kind of civilization ending risk. It ends all future value or obliterates the things that we, we value in life. So it has this catastrophic implications for the future of humanity. Yes, yes, it's massive yeah. in that way. And then, of course, you have you immediately, as from a moral philosophical standpoint, you will immediately okay. So here you have a value variable that's that's really scoring a high point. Uh, so that's really and that's one reason to do something, so to speak. But on the other hand, it's very difficult to know whether or not this value will really be under threat in reality. And it's also very uncertain whether or not anything you, you think you might do in response to it will work or if it will just be a waste of resources. Yeah, so I mean, it's, yeah. it, it seems to me that the, like the knowledge gap, so, so we have this speculated risk that could be catastrophic. Yeah. And then we face a number of, of, well, the knowledge gap poses a problem in, in a number of different ways. So we have um, un uncertainty about how really likely this risk is and so we have a question to ask about do yeah. we do we invest more resources in finding out how likely it is to close that knowledge yeah. gap but then we also have uncertainty about whether yeah. it, it's wise to respond to it in a certain way i mean couldn't we also have yeah. uncertainty about whether it's wise to invest in trying to close the knowledge gap i mean doesn't the uncertainty kind of just perpetuate backwards I think, yes i think so and that's part of the that's why I, this is sort of where we get into this concept that I sort of have as the core idea of, of the book then, the, price of, the idea of the price of precaution. Because, the, I mean, it could be that although we face a, a, a sort of a thinkable, massive kind of threat in this way, is that it, we shouldn't even try to deal with it in any way at all, not even try to know more about it. Uh, because it's you know, because we have we have a limited time, we have limited resources, and there are better things we can do with this time and the resources. Simply like that. Yeah, I mean, so one thing you point out is that um, when we deal with, let's say, mundane risks, not existential yeah. risks, there are certain institutional solutions to the problem of the knowledge gap. So, like, what are those institutional solutions? Yes. So, uh, I mean, so class. Uh, so. So, for example, so a good idea, good example. I mean, so this regulation of pharmaceutical that I mentioned. So, we, I mean, so it's just that the FDA or or the EMA or other sort of agencies doing this. You have a law saying that well, it has to be sufficiently safe and it has to be backed up by sufficient evidence. That's basically what the law in this area would say. And then there's an agency that just creating an operationalization of that norm. And, uh, and, it's, and then you can say, well, it's not so important exactly how that operationalization looks like, just that it gets it sort of reasonably within the area of having some sort of substantial requirement so that you have to show something at least. Um, and I think another example, or the sort of the proof, um, criteria in, in law, for instance, that um, uh, you don't need to prove 
beyond any doubt that someone has committed a crime in order to uh, to have them sentenced for that crime, you have to uh, you have to have a proof beyond reasonable doubt. And of course, that's a qualitatively uh, formulated idea. But then, in the institution of law, it's being uh, operationalized in various ways. And you can say that for okay, so we could, for example, choose to have a little bit less or more confidence in like fingerprints or <laughs> anything like that uh, if we wanted to, but it doesn't really make a difference for, for the issue of closing um, sort of uh, the knowledge gap in these areas. The important thing is that we have some kind of procedure solution because we also know that we can't go on forever in each single case to to sort of, because we could always collect more information. And I mean, have a sort of a meta doubt about the methods we have, and a meta meta doubt about the meta doubt we had about the methods we had, and so on. So that's kind of, so we, in practice, we also sort of just at some point or other, we chose, okay, so let's put down the foot here, and then that might be revised over time. But I think that in often we don't really require of these solutions to be theoretically precise and well-grounded. We just have to, they have to work sufficiently well. Uh, and we sort of accept that in the knowledge that, well, we also know that in these areas, there will always be a point where trying even more to make a perfect decision will not be worth it. In, in the sort of light of the values that motivates, for example, criminal law or or the system of um, licensing pharmaceuticals or any other kind of uh, institution like this. So it has to do, and that's the problem with existential risks then, that they don't really present a limit like that. Uh, we are sort of the reason for um, uh, for collecting more information and making sure or are being beaten by other kinds of, of, of consideration because they are so massive. They have this enormous pool. Uh, if you accept existential risk arguments, that is. But so I mean, you could work. Yeah. I mean, if I could come in back in here, because so let's say in yeah. the case of law, as you're pointing yeah. out, like we don't we don't insist upon absolute certainty. We we pick a an evidential threshold or standard that something must cross in order yeah. to be satisfied with it. And then I think yeah. more more importantly than that, because there could be disputes about whether a particular bit of evidence really does cross that threshold. We actually sure. set, we set up an institution that we say, you're going to be the final arbiter of this, and we trust yeah. you to make those decisions. So why, why couldn't we do that in the case of existential risk? You know, why couldn't we say that the Future of Humanity Institute is the final arbiter of what <laughs> kinds of existential risks we should take seriously? Why well, wouldn't that work? Uh, uh, because, I mean, a pro because the problem is that each single existential risk uh, is capable then of swallowing all resources on the planet to close its own knowledge gap because of its own nature, because there's so much to know and there will always remain uncertainties and so on and so forth. So how would they sort of motivate where to stop? So once you accept this idea that the massive possible harm uh, motivates you to take precautions and to try to know more and to try to figure out and design remedies and responses. So once you accepted the idea that just the massiveness of that possible harm in itself uh, creates this normative pool, then of course there's no end to that pool because of the massiveness of it. Um, so that's the problem then. I mean, a way out here is, of course, to say that, well, actually, when you, when you say that, uh, uh, I, I rephrase my existential risk argument, I now say that actual, actually this massiveness of these possible harms is just kind of an intermediate normative uh, reason here. It's, it provides some reason to act, but it's not the idea that this enormous uh, threat in itself uh, uh, faces, us with, faces us with these uh, enormously strong moral reasons. As I have in interpreted the sort of the typical uh, existential uh, risk advocates to, 
to say, basically. And especially, I think, uh, Bostrom in, in several uh, papers uh, and so on are saying like this, that the, this should be the global priority. It's risks like this that we should focus on. And this seems to lead to the conclusion, OK, so let's stop trying to provide clean drinking water to people and, and stop trying to deal with public health threats and the Ebola and things that we actually know how to t- fix and instead uh, invest all our resources in in research on a possible um, super intelligence threat in the, in the far off of the future. Yeah, so I mean, there's a couple of things here. I mean, just for people listening to this, what we're talking about right now is the black hole challenge that you mentioned. So we haven't used that phrase exactly, but... The t- so, so, the, yeah. so the black hole challenge is, is uh, sort of that given that you accept the strong normative reasons coming out of, of a mere possible enormous harm that could come from something that we're engaging or doing or contemplate doing, uh, then, of course you're faced with the question, okay, so then I have to do something, but how much do I have to do? When do I stop, address this possibility in various ways by collecting information and and designing and constructing responses and so on? And it seems like when the existential risk argument is formulated in in its usual way, it doesn't provide any answer to that question or where to draw the limit. Yes, but then, so you'll have people like, uh, Ole Hagstrom, who was a previous guest on this show, who'll say that, isn't it interesting that the people who advocate existential risk don't say that we should invest everything in closing these knowledge gaps or in addressing these problems? They they kind of say we should invest more than we're currently investing because it's an under-resourced problem, but they're not saying all money from public budgets should be going into AI risk. Well, but then I have to ask then, I mean, what does it mean that this should be a global priority, for instance, which is a direct quotation of Bostrom in this case. Uh, so, so I mean, of course, that you could you could say that okay, so we should pay some attention to this and probe it a little bit these possibilities and probe also the possibility of finding a workable response to the you know global killer threat from our outer space and things like that. We could invest some of it, but then the question becomes how much? And I never heard any sort of um, response to that question. And, and of course, if you're going to do like a moral analysis in this field, you all, you, it's not enough to say that there is some reason for this. You also have to analyze the other reasons because there are also some reasons against it. Uh, so some of this seems to be pretty far-fetched fantasies and, and the arguments about the possibilities of the superintelligence is based a lot on a lot of a priori assumptions and sort of very theoretical speculation. So uh, there's very little empirical evidence, really, uh, for instance. Uh, so that, then you ask, okay, so there are also other fantasies that we could have and we could invest our resources in investigating further, of course. So, so where does this end? So once you step out on this road and say that this is really important, uh, because I think they actually don't say what Ulle tries to say that they say. Uh, so when you read Bostrom and Tegmark and people like that, they express themselves far stronger. Yeah, so I mean, you could say Ulle is being reasonable, but your criticism is that if you take the arguments of existential risk proponents seriously you you don't have a rational basis for being reasonable about this does that or yeah, being modest about yeah, this yeah sure and i'm fine with all this so that was my response in the paper to to his response in that case that fine uh, but then present me with the principle that motivates this this sort of more moderated uh, account of existential risk yeah, so it, se- it seems like there's, there isn't a clear rational justification for this presented in Ule's work. It's more just hi- maybe a, a temperamental issue. That, that's just his temperament or his attitude towards it, whereas a more yeah. z- zealous follower of the existential risk philosophy would be m- more inclined to accept this kind of black hole problem or m- be more vulnerable to this black hole problem. Yes, it might be, but just as a might paper was about, you know, okay, so given that you want to limit yourself, the question then becomes how do you justify the limitation? Because I think there's something to the existential risk argument as well. I think the notion that there are massive harms that 
uh, we could know more about in various ways, both about how probable they are and so on, but also how we might respond to them. I think that has some normative force, of course. Um, the question is how much? That's that's sort of, and I, I thought, so my, my thinking around the precautionary principle uh, has been around that kind of balancing issues all of the time, because it's basically a similar problem to the one that uh, Hans Jonas was facing then with this very simple uh, principle that whenever something might endanger the human species, we shouldn't do it. Uh, so, so then the question, okay, so then we can't do nothing. What do you say about that? And then there was no answer from these people who sort of quoted that kind of thing in those days. So, look, I think I, I basically agree with this, that somebody taking the existential risk argument seriously is confronted by this problem of how do you know when to stop investing in addressing the, the problem? But I also think that there's another problem here, which I mentioned to you in the, an email I sent, but, um, and, and you kind of alluded to this already that, okay, we're, we're gonna take the AI risk seriously, but there are lots of other potential risks we could take seriously. And it seems to yeah. me that if, if you accept that, that there, there are existential risks in every direction you look, in a sense, yeah. what you end up with is not so much that this black hole problem where you get sucked into addressing one problem. Yeah. What actually you end up with is a kind of decisional paralysis because you're being pulled in so many directions at once. You just don't know yeah. what you should do, really. And I think that to me, that's yeah, the biggest challenge here. Yeah, so that's one challenge. And that's, of course, an original challenge of, of, of Pascal's wager then that I discuss a little bit in, in the paper. So uh, because I made this uh, blog post where I, I was a little bit less analytical and more sort of maybe uh, sarcastic about the existential risk arguments and asked them, okay, so why don't attending mass, you guys, just to ensure yourself, you know, against ending up in hell, if, if this is the way that you want to reason. And, and Ole discussed this argument in his book. And uh, I mean, we know each other, so we already had talked about it, but and one of his arguments was that, well, you know, the Pascal's wager is not that strong of an argument because there are mo so many suggestions of what the right faith should be. And it seems that it's a very similar thing. So if you think that that, uh, that response shoots down this challenge for the existential risk argument, then, of course, it immediately raises also for the existential risk argument itself. So I think you're right there that uh, it's also the question that if you have a non-gradual normative decision principles to deal with uh, epistemic uncertainty and how to balance risks and things like that, then you always face this kind of problem because you will find, you will find uh, for example, possible threats of different kinds all over the place, as you say. And also just by you know, standing still and doing nothing will create threats. Like so I think you're right. But I think that a sound solution to uh, the real problems that we face uh, as decision makers uh, regarding closing knowledge gap and so on, also in this area, so, so a good solution here uh, should find a way to wriggle yourself out of the decisional paralysis. Uh, so this is actually one thing I had as a, as, a, as a requirement for my own theory in the book, that one of the things is a good theory in this area has to avoid is this decisional paralysis uh, sort of downstream consequence. And I think that, and then Steele has described uh, this and another thing that, that you get, that you get contradictory prescriptions, for instance, they are very similar to these things. So, so you don't want your decision theoretical norm to systematically deliver paradoxes to you, things that you can't act on, basically. Uh, so you want a theory that is able to solve this problem. And in the paper, then I sketch, based on my own theory, then I try to sketch two different kinds of solutions um, for how to move forward regarding that challenge, because I, I certainly don't solve that problem, either in my book or in the paper. Okay, so I mean, let's talk about those two solutions now. But I think maybe as a preliminary to talking about them, we need to go back for a minute to talk about the the price of precaution, because I think that features heavily in how you analyze this problem. Yeah. So we haven't yeah. really clarified what that concept means. 
So, like, what is the the price of precaution in in your theory? It's basically whatever you lose by acting precautionary, uh, and it could be possible chances of you know acting um, on some in some direction that you abstain from precautionary um, action. So, for example, when you delay the introduction of a new pharmaceutical, if it's a good pharmacy to test it and so on, if it's uh, if it actually good pharmaceutical, you of course denying it to. A certain number of patients during that time, uh, although you think you do it for good reasons because you think you lack the evidence that you, that you need in order to responsibly offer it to people. Um, so that is one part of the price of precaution. Uh, another part of it is, of course, all the kind of more direct costs and harms that follows from trying to respond to a possible risk or trying to improve the knowledge situation uh, regarding some risk and so on. So all of that comes into it in the notion of, uh, of a price of precautions. And the idea was that it's, the notion was that, okay, so the whole idea about the precautionary principles starts out with the idea that, well, actually, um, acting um, in a way that might pose a serious uh, danger um, uh, has a moral price uh, to it. And then the idea was, well, also act, not acting in this way always has a moral price. So the, the moral philosophical solution in this area should try to somehow present the principle for balancing these considerations. Uh, and then I, I found then uh, the sort of the tools for doing this that you find within traditional orthodox decision theory wasn't really enough. Uh, and that ultimately, I think it's more of an ethical problem than a problem about rationality. Uh, so you might have an idea that's important to be rational, but um, I think it doesn't take you all the way. So you also need some idea of what is a what is a responsible way of handling lack of knowledge, for instance, when you have lots at stake. So these kinds of things come in. But whatever way you go, so if if you take the example with, um, you can have a very concrete example. So I do a lot of medical ethics, for instance. There's something you discuss in clinical uh, consultation with, with doctors is, for example, a very common problem they have, that they, they have a patient, there's, there are some symptoms, um, it might be a certain problem, it might be that um, a certain treatment would be a good treatment in this case, but you also know that it might not. So this is the situation of clinical medicine all the time. Uh, and you might have a guideline and it seems to match a diagnosis, but you also know that even though you match a diagnosis, it's not certain that the recommended treatment will be optimal in this individual case, even if there's a lot of statistics backing it up. Uh, so you always have to sort of balance between experimenting a little bit and start a treatment. And at some time, and you can, of course, look in the literature and try to investigate things and so on. But while you do that, the sort of the clock is ticking and, and the patient is getting worse. So you have to, at some point, you have to make the call. Uh, even if you then still lack a lot of evidence, you act in a situation of uncertainty and you try to deal with the consequences like that. And, and so here the price of precaution would be that the more precautionary you are, the more you delay your decision here on what to do with the patient, uh, uh, the more serious symptoms is hitting the patient and you have suffering and you might have an increased risk of death due to the disease, for instance, in this case. Then in that case, that would be the price of precaution in that case. So then based on that idea, you try to balance these different considerations of acting responsibly, not being reckless, uh, not being negligent, but uh, was so uh, taking into the consideration that uh, it might sometimes you you may be too cautious, and this will be against the interest of the patient, and actually not the part of what uh, responsible decision making would require of you to do. And I think you can take this basic situation was up to high level policy making in many cases. It's just that the, the whole situation is, is, is so much more complex in that case. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this medical example is useful just for, for clarifying some of the concepts and then seeing how they might carry over to the existential risk debate. Because, 
Yeah, we, yeah. In, in that context, we have a clear understanding of what the price of precaution is. You know, you're going to run more tests, and that has direct costs, and it also has these opportunity costs because you prevent starting treatment earlier. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, the, the normative decision theory that you try to apply then is that there is a there's a theory of what it may, means to be a responsible doctor in handling the evidence and making the choices about when to start treatment and that needs to yeah. guide our thinking here so w- one yeah. of the things you point out in the paper is that a doctor confronting let's say a set of p- options about whether to start treatment or learn more about the symptoms and the disease at some point in time they reach um, a situation where they are their options are good enough or there's a good enough uh, solution to the problem. Could you explain yeah. that that idea and how it works? This good enough solution. Yeah. So, so this came from someone I saw. So this has to do with how to balance. So you have both the so you have uh, yeah. So let me roll back and take one other thing first. And this has to do with the knowledge gap and the way I sort of so the theory in the book uh, deals with that because. I view then the problem of the knowledge gap, this problem of epistemic precaution or when to, try, when stop, to stop trying to know more, I view this as a practical decision problem and not a problem in sort of theoretical epistemology or rational decision making. So it's more about a practical problem that will have actual consequences. So one of the options will all, in all situations will always be to delay the decision and try to collect more information. Uh, so that's part of that. And then the notion then of, <clears throat> of a good enough solution is the idea that, so you have these parameters, you have the quality of the evidence or the quality of the information that you will base the decision of, on, and then you, have, uh, then you have the possible outcomes that you measure with whatever ethical theory that you like, <laughs> that sort of says uh, how serious uh, they are, um, both the positives and the negatives. And then you have the epistemic uh, situation or with regard to likelihoods and, and so on and so forth. Um, and these three things are supposed now to be balanced in some way in this situation, looking at all the options you have. Then the idea was that okay, so um, so what? So the question is that okay, so in order to find a point at which I stop trying to make my uh, basis of evidence better in order to act responsibly, I have to have this idea that at some point I I know sufficiently. Uh, I have enough information, given this, the likelihood risk situation and what's at stake in the situation. So this was the sort of the qualitative idea that I started with to, uh, to have in the book. So the notion was that if you have an option in your option set that has this quality, then you can say that, well, okay, so relative to this um, option, other option becomes uh, inferior in various ways. It might be that they have other qualities that still make them um, better, but they have to sort of be, you assess them relative to the presence of that sort of good enough option. Uh, And my idea was that this is a way of decision-making that we actually use a lot in in everyday decision-making. That, that at some point we, we had, okay, so I go down, I'm going to take the tram, I look at the timetable, uh, it looks, is it really that time? I look one time more, and, and then I look a third time just to be sure, and that's sort of enough. I could look like 20 more times, right, but I don't. So given the stakes here, I could miss the tram or something like that, and, and the likelihood that I, I did, you know, that did some kind of mistake or there's something wrong with my eyes or whatever, uh, relative to those things. Three times seems like, you know, okay, so if I feel a bit uncertain, that's sort of enough. If I start to look again and again and again, there seems to be something wrong with me, um, either morally or (laughs) psychologically. I'm sort of wasting my energy on something here. It doesn't really improve my decision-making by doing that. Uh, so this yeah. was the sort. Of, this is this was the qualitative idea under it, and then 
then in the book I spent a lot of energy on trying to find like a neat technical way of explaining this um, in order to have it sort of uh, work on people who want to have theories in this area in this sort of more uh, very precise technical language as we often do especially in analytic philosophy but I mean in philosophy in general and especially with relation to decision theory so people who come from decision theory and want to sort of assess my claim that, hey guys, the precautionary principle is not so uh, bad as you thought it was. Uh, look here, you can actually, you can actually formulate a notion of precaution which is not identical to maximizing expected utility, but still has that you can make sense of uh, within the framework of the orthodox decision theory, the normal assumptions that you have. Yeah, I mean, so with that example of looking at the train timetable, or even in a more applied ethical context, I think we have some kind of intuitive sense of what what what, what will be reckless and what will be negligent. Yeah, in those circumstances. Um, yeah. How does that how does that carry over to the case of existential risk? Because it seems to me that there's still a problem with knowing what is the yeah what is. what is a good enough standard? Like what is good enough? It is absolutely a problem, and and in the in the paper I I I just I just say that I said that if we could <laughs> describe this sort of good enough point uh, with regard to existential risks, um, then we could apply that kind of solution. But the problem remains on how to find it and how to justify it, and this is also a problem that remains in the book. This one of these remaining unanswered questions. I decided, okay, so I've taken this theory as far as I can, and here are some things that will take a long time to try to figure out. Uh, so let's let's publish the book in this format and then try to work out the other things. And it was uh, the existential risk thing just came upon me by chance, really, but it turned out to be a, a really stimulating, uh, you know, uh, prod that made me think more about this particular problem. But I think that when I think about this problem, I'm trying to find a technical, theoretical solution in this area. I'm sort of always, I'm sort of pushed towards more, more pragmatic solutions again. Although I think that they are more tricky to formulate than, so you can't really use this argument as we said before, that you draw some arbitrary limit, like in law or in systems for, for licensing medicines or something like that. So you have to have a justification here. So how do you justify it? And I think, so my current, I think, so in the, in, in the paper, I have the second solution, which is more like, okay, so instead of trying to find this sort of uh, theoretical fundament uh, uh, that could sort of axiomatically prove that how you should justify uh, and identify something as a sort of good enough solution with regard to existential risks, given that you accept the force of the existential risk argument. Uh, maybe we should instead look at what we as human beings are capable of in this area. So that's sort of, I started to think about, so because I come back to this a lot of the times when you have this sort of, this is a theoretical axiomatic theories that, well, it's like this observation in, in, in political economy that you have the micro-theory that you play around with, but everybody knows that the micro-theory never applies. Uh, so when it comes to macroeconomic theory, you have to think in another way and you have to factor in the way that pe people actually are and how they sort of adapt to uh, policies and the way that business works and so on and so forth. And I think the same way here, right? So, so then I asked myself, so suppose now that um, uh, politicians started to, to take seriously these really strong claims on existential risk advocates and, and said stuff like, okay, so let's take the national budget for the coming 20 years and invest that in existential risk strategies. Uh, so what would happen? Well, these politicians would be, you know, removed uh, by the population in one or other way, uh, or by a coup or something. Uh, and that sort of shows, okay, so there's a limit here. So, so that 
in, so even if you theoretically could make an argument that that is what we should do, you also know that if we tried to do it due to the way that human beings are, it would never happen, even if we tried. Uh, and that's compatible with the sort of ideal theoretical claim that we should, and they, and the populations, and you know the military leaders that make the coup and so on, they should be on the wagon as well. But I think this is a sort of pragmatic challenge that you often face in high-level policy, that you want to do something, uh, and we see it in the climate change area, for instance, uh, you want to do something, this enormous threat, and, but it's very difficult to motivate people to back up the policies that will theoretically be justified by the threat. Um, and that sort of creates a sort of pragmatic uh, principle for setting limits here. Because if your, if your policy, if your recommended policy would be in practice counterproductive in this way, uh, then maybe you should go for something less that could be accepted more readily and be more feasible from a political standpoint, for instance. So that was kind of the idea that came into here. And then I described some, yeah, so the, and then I, I use some sort of observations about general human psychology here that, you know, if you if you try to take too much for, from people too soon and, and you, you make too much of an effort, people won't be, won't agree on that. Uh, another aspect is, of course, the other way around, that if you don't, if you make too little an effort, people will not be, will not be um, motivated to participate either. So you have to have some kind of measured uh, idea here. But then now, now that solution sort of moves the issue into some kind of area of a mix between applied moral philosophy and sort of practical policy making, really. Uh, so something in between where a lot of pragmatics and sort of non-ideal theory, if you want, uh, plays into the solution or how you try to find that limit also in this area. Yeah, I mean, so the kind of end point of your paper is about the need for existential risk proponents or people who want us to take this seriously to factor in the need for kind of arbitrary, well, sorry, I don't want to say arbitrary, but the need for fixed endpoints to how much should be invested. So they, the, the observation that you make about human psychology is that um, people don't want to invest in projects that are have vague goals, but also if they do commit to those kinds of projects, they don't know when to stop. So you need to somehow counteract or counterbalance that human tendency to both avoid investment and then to overinvest. So you have to insert some kind of preset limits to how much we're going to invest in solving this problem. Yeah, so I, I think you could sort of add uh, psychological characteristics of this kind. So you also have other dimensions of, of decision psychology of human beings. But, 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 but yeah, so these are the ones I mentioned in the paper. But I think that, but sort of the underlying idea is that here that you can actually, instead of going for this sort of ideal theoretical uh, solution, a principle, a watertight principle that justifies in a watertight way, what option is the sort of good enough option that you should go for in the existential risk case, you, you try to sort of wiggle yourself forward in this pragmatic way. So you say, okay, so you say the only argument you have, well, there's some reason here to invest in investigating this further. We don't know how much we should go. So let's settle for a project and a sort of a moderate amount of resources that goes into this. Then we make a new assessment and see what happens. That would be the sort of uh, thing. And I think that when it comes to the existential risks, then maybe excluding, at least for now, the superintelligence risk, I think most of the other existential risks, this is actually going on. So there are some investments in trying to, you know, counter a global killer threat, for instance. There are some, at least, of you know, trying to keep track of asteroids and stuff. Uh, there are, I mean, our handling of the of the nuclear threat has been going on for a long time already. 
there are this investment when it comes to climate change and so on. And maybe in the climate change area, some of the problems that we see in the global policy has to do with not acknowledging the difficult pragmatics surrounding this kind of policy making, I think. You're trying to do a lot at once, you know, all over the place. And I think that's always carries this risk that you will have a rebellion rather than a support. Um, so it's politically risk that comes out of human nature. So you have this in a lot of areas. And I think that, I mean, I am now at the end of this term organizing here in Gothenburg with specific money that has been allocated for this, an AI ethics workshop uh, that also is supposed to speak to not so much to other academics, but to people in business, in uh, you know, in in public policy, in healthcare, and so on and so forth. So there seems to be investment there also, even if maybe it's not primarily the superintelligence threat we will talk about, but more sort of um, closely, <laughs> uh, well, threats that are sort of we can see more concretely and closely now. Mm. Uh, but of course. Of course, the superintelligence threat is, uh, of course, potentially embedded in the problem that we have already now with the uncertainties around autonomous decision making and machine learning and algorithms that we can't really understand. Yeah, and, we, we and, might have precursors know, to it. Yeah. yeah, so we have some kind of precursors to the problem, but the superintelligence problem will then be the problem. Okay, so suppose that uh, this becomes so autonomous that we can't control it. That's basically it. Yeah. So, so if and if the superintelligence, if it's a superintelligence and it has an interest in controlling itself, it will. Uh, we can't beat it. So that's kind of the way I read that that scenario. And um, of course, it's a possibility, but but it's also a long way from here. So you can start dealing with it. So I think it, I think you actually find that. This is going on in a couple of areas, but as you said before, there might be zillion other existential risk areas where we don't do any assessment right now, just because it's never been, you know, in the papers or something like that. Yeah, I mean, so I think that advice that you have to work with the pragmatic limits of human psychology and human institutions when addressing this issue is, you know, good good advice and trying to figure out what those limits are. I mean, I just have one last question which has to do actually yeah. with the normative theory to go back a couple of steps. Yeah. I think you do mention this in the paper, but I can't remember exactly how you, you formulate it. So my understanding is that it's difficult to identify the standards of what is good enough when it comes to making a choice yeah. about precaution. But there is like yeah. there is one very clear limit. And so proponents of existential risk are in many ways conservative. And I'm sure they would maybe reject that label because they'd associate it with political philosophies. But what I mean is that they want to conserve what they see as valuable about human civilization. Yeah. And so any kind of precautionary policy that somehow threatens to undermine what is currently valuable about human civilization would seem to be a step too far because it wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't balance the price of precaution appropriately with the mm. actual risk that the new technology or new policy proposes. So it seems like we might have yeah. one fairly good good uh, standards to apply in this context. Yeah, but I, but I think that that's the Jonas principle, basically. So that's saying, okay, so if it poses this threat to civilization or to, you know, the future existence of humanity or something like that, then don't do it. Uh, the, and I think that, and if your only value is the preservation of what we currently have. Yeah, but I suppose my point is that that works. That applies to the precautionary policies as well. So that applies to how much we invest in closing the knowledge gap and how much we invest in banning or preventing the bad effects of technology. So we, we can't go too far with those things either. No, so, so if your only value is sort of not to have any threat against uh, what we have right now, for instance, and avoid or avoid any... I mean, this is problematic but because, of course, a lot of aspects of what is going on now all supposes threat to the same thing. So it's kind of complicated in that way that human civilization is also a threat to human civilization in that way. But it's, 
if we if if we ignore that for a second, I mean, I think that you could say I think the uh, the sort of the the response here would be uh, would be a moral philosophical response and say, but but hey, okay, so currently we're in the situation where. Uh, in Sweden, your average life expectancy is 85 years old. Uh, uh, while we know that in several other places, most other pla- many other places is very, very much lower than that. If you take one thing that we find good about civilization is that it helps us extend our life, for instance. So this means that we would say that, okay, so why would we say that this this particular point of civilizations, where Swedes can live to 85, but say Nigerians cannot, uh, that this should be the optimal stage of, of human civilization. Uh, why not go for Nigerians at least reaching a little bit over, on average, what they reach at the moment, and when it's regards to a life expectancy, but. If we're going to go for that, we also have to take some risks with our civilization. So it might be that, I mean, so this would require technology, it would require uh, that we produce energy to support our technology, that we expand the, the currently ongoing threat of industrial civilization and so on and so, so forth. So I think the problem you would have there is have a justification for uh, why is this stage right now, the optimum, why not going for a little bit better? Yeah, no, I think that's fair enough because <laughs> there's a problem here both in like what do we pick as being the current status quo? Do we pick a particular nation state or the global state of affairs or whatever? And also then there's a problem of an underlying assumption that society can be understood as this kind of static phenomenon that we preserve and that we conserve when that's clearly not true and if it's the case that we're under threat from all directions it's not going to be through either, true either so yeah then, yeah then we're back to your uh, yeah. your observation about the decisional paralysis threat if you try to do this sort of simplistic uh, argument and from an existential risk standpoint you will face that problem instead i think yeah no i think that's that's right okay so i think that's probably a good place to leave it um people who want a lot of the detail on this should check out that paper. I think it's available open access, as far as I recall. Yeah, so all of this stuff is on uh, this kind of portal where you post papers called ResearchGate. Yeah. Uh, so where you can find most of the stuff. And uh, my book, you can't find it in that way, but uh, I'm easy to contact, and it, it most of the things can be arranged. Yeah, very good. So I will put a link to your institutional webpage and your research gate profile when i post this online but uh, apart from that um thank you very much for for joining me for this conversation yeah thanks john